You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit SojournMontrose.com. Let me, let me say this briefly about the book of Hebrews. Uh, I think Hebrews in general, for most preachers, um, at least if they're sort of aware of of the magnitude of Hebrews, it, it, it gives us a little pause when we come to it in that it is filled with um, a, a, lot of, a lot of metaphor and a lot of scriptural references that are ultimately fairly difficult to, to decipher um, and, and for which there's a lot of commentary for different, different understandings um, of what this may mean. So we're just going to take this sort of from, from that very surface level. Um, all of what really can faithfully deduce from this, right? And so just know that there's some apprehension there for me and that we really do want to handle this well uh, this morning. But we're going to read just the first two verses and it, it says this. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's a couple of things that I think are going to lead us to to where we want to get to in this idea um, that the kingdom of God is established by um, obedience, right? And and the first thing that we have to do, I think, is just draw out from these couple of verses um, really what it's trying to tell us about who Jesus was, like what he accomplished on our behalf. And to do so, we really need to kind of look at the the words um, that the author of Hebrews, who we we can't even really identify, um, used in these first couple of verses. And um, of course, first he uses this word Christ. And what we begin to see over these first couple of verses is that the the station that Christ held, which we spoke about a lot in, in Epiphany, that he was the son of God, that he was the king, the promised king, the Messiah, right? was not something that he took upon himself, but rather that it was something that was, that was placed upon him or that was appointed to him by God the Father, right? And so that's why it tells us in that first verse that Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. But here's what's odd. Here's what's odd in that. In using the name Christ, he is stating about Christ that he is king, Right? So he's giving Christ this kingly name, this kingly station, and yet he is saying that it was not Christ himself who exalted himself to that. Right? I mean, this word Christ, this, you know, that's not his last name, right? Christ is, is an attribute, right? It means or is equated to king or Messiah, right? And so this is the exact confession. Of, of Peter and the disciples, right, in the Gospels, where, where it says that, where they, he asks them, who, who do you say that I am? And they respond with, Lord, you, you are the Christ. You are this king, this promised Messiah, right? This name that the author of Hebrews gives to Jesus in this particular verse, although he will use just the word Jesus simply later, is incredibly important. I mean, this is the This is the same word that so many of Jesus' doubters throughout his life also asked him, right? Are you the Christ? Are you this king? Are you this Messiah, right? So we see Jesus' kingship already being affirmed. And and to back that up, in uh, that verse 6, we have a quote from Psalm chapter 2. 
in which this, this promised king is spoken of very clearly, very concisely as well. And it tells us that there will come someone of whom God will say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And what, what the author of Hebrews does is he attributes that quote in the Psalms, which was a book written way before Jesus ever walked on earth. And he says, that, that belongs to Jesus. That, this title of Christ, this title of king becomes him. It belongs to him. He is the king. And then he uses this other significant word when he says that also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. This idea of high priest. Now, um, <laughs> we can't do all the background work in order to get a real good understanding of, of what that actually means, especially in terms of its, its cultural significance. And yet what we can come to know is that it is significant, especially when he quotes from Psalm 110 in verse 6. And he says this, he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now here's what's significant about this particular verse in Psalm 110 is that it's never quoted anywhere else in the New Testament other than in Hebrews, but in Hebrews it's quoted three times. And so there's, there's something that must be significant or relevant or resonant about this verse in particular for the author of Hebrews. And my hope is that we will sort of explain that very briefly. But I guess the first thing we have to do is ask ourselves, who, who is this Melchizedek? And we actually run into him in Genesis chapter 14. And what we come to understand about him very simply is that according to Genesis 14, he was both a king, but he was also a priest. So he was the king of Salem, but he was also the priest of God Most High. He held those two things together at the same time. Now, that may not seem odd to you um, in, in any way, and yet until Jesus... Melchizedek is the only person throughout the, the canon of Scripture that holds those two titles simultaneously, both being the king and the high priest. In fact, there's multiple times throughout the Bible in which um, it's sort of conveyed to us that really those, those positions are mutually exclusive, that one cannot be the high priest and yet also the king, that those two things don't work. And so the linking of Jesus to this man Melchizedek is probably saying something about the fact that Jesus not only has upon himself a kingship that has been bestowed to him by God, but that he also has a priesthood, a priestly nature that has been bestowed to him by God and that he carries them both together in perfect unity and in perfect harmony. So our author gives us this stupendous truth, right? That like Melchizedek, Jesus is both king and priest, but that unlike Melchizedek, he is those things eternally. And that it all came to him by the ordaining word of God the Father. That Jesus did not seek it. That just like Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he did not consider this something to be grasped, right? But rather that it is something that has been bestowed upon him that Jesus holds both the ultimate royal office and the ultimate priestly office 
and that neither of them were taken, but rather given by God. Now, if we remember the title of the sermon this morning, then this all probably seems somewhat off course. And yet, what this does, what this understanding of who Jesus is and what He's done and how the Lord God has bestowed upon Him these significant cultural offices and these significant spiritual offices over all peoples is what will set up, I think, the contrast between verses 5 and 6 and what we will then read in verses 7 and 8. And in verses 7 and 8, it tells us this. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. So here's what makes this interesting, right? Those first couple of verses, essentially what we saw very clearly for us was the author of Hebrews reminding us that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus not only holds the office of king because he's the Son of God, but he is also the high priest, right? Which, again, we're not going to dive into, but suffice it to say, he's incredibly, that's an incredibly significant office, culturally speaking. But at the same time here, what we see, or what we see juxtaposed with that, is that Jesus was also a man. That in the days of his flesh, he was fully human. That he offered up prayers, supplications, with loud cries, with tears. That he learned obedience, that he suffered. So it's intriguing for me that we see this vast shift from verse 6 to verse 7. That if Jesus is the eternal royalty and priesthood of God Himself, how does it then follow that He learns obedience? And why would He need to? You see, I think often, maybe uh, it's probably a good thing in in some ways, and it's probably a bad thing in some ways too, um, but... I think a lot of times when we think about Jesus, we do think about him in his godness, right? In that in some ways we look at Jesus and we think of him as very distinct from humankind, right? In that, yes, Jesus did this, but Jesus was different in that he was God. Yes, Jesus walked in in life like we walked in life. He went through, you know, stages of growth. He did all of those things, and yet he, I mean, he was God. So so the empathy level between us and Jesus is, is, is maybe not quite as close as, as some may say it is. And yet from birth to death, what, what we are seeing laid out before us here in Hebrews is that, is that our Lord Jesus experienced the sinless infirmities of human nature. He knew what it was to grow and mature. He experienced hunger, thirst, weariness. He faced temptation to sin and persecution at the, at the hands of sinful men. And here in Hebrews, what we see is really three, sort of three ways in which Jesus walked um, in our shoes. In which Jesus walked in, in human nature, right? It tells us first that He offered up prayer and supplication which some of us might be asking the difference between those two. Prayers are often on behalf of yourself, and then supplication is generally on behalf of others, right? So it tells us that Jesus walked in that, not only with concern for others, but concern for himself. 
that he prayed on his own behalf. Jesus, the Son of God, remember. Right? This is a way in which he experiences humanity. But then most clearly it tells us, right, that he suffered and that ultimately he died. That as a part of his human experience, those are things that he walked through and not with apathy toward them, but rather with prayer and with supplication. How, so when we go back to that question of how could the Son of God, right, this great high priest, this royal king, this one who is to be reverenced and obeyed, how could he learn obedience? I would say that it's in the same way that any, any other son or daughter must learn obedience. By the experiences of life, right? We, we have to remember that Jesus in his earthly walk lived by faith in the Father's will. That as God, he needed to learn nothing, but as the Son of God in human flesh, he had to experience that which his people would experience so that he might be able to minister to them as their high priest. He didn't need to learn how to obey, but he had to learn what was involved in obeying. And that's the huge distinction between us and between Jesus. But that in this moment, what we see is that God, Jesus, the Son of God Himself, has shown solidarity with us. Right? That Jesus came and that He walked in all of these things, in obedience to all of these things, in humility in all of these things, and experienced ultimately what it, what it costs for His people to follow Him. And I think these, these things that we talked about, these prayers, these supplications, and this suffering and death that Jesus went through, um, these things are sort of most evidenced in the time leading up to the cross, right? His solidarity, like, like we see Jesus in his humanness most clearly in those moments leading up to the cross. In that we see him in, in, in a garden where he repeatedly asks of the Lord, where he makes prayers, right, on his behalf. On his own behalf, he repeatedly asks of the Lord if it would be possible that the hour or the cup, right, those metaphors for his death, that they might be avoided. Right, it gives us this really intimate picture of Jesus where he, is, where he is so anxious in that moment that it tells us that the sweat was like drops of blood. I see this really incredibly human moment right some of us might even think like how, how does it work for the son of god to desire something contrary to his father's will and yet this is a great moment in which we see the combination of verses five and six and verses seven and eight right both the godness of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus coming together in that as Jesus was truly God and truly man, as a man he had a human will that his prayer was not to do something other than the Father's will, but that he was concerned enough for himself that if there was a possibility of fulfilling his mission without the cross, he would opt for that. That as a man, Christ cried for escape. That he wept for escape. 
from this moment, this, this climax of Jesus' obedience. And yet, as a man, he desired the Father's will even more. And so this is, this is really what uh, much of Hebrews is sort of geared towards. It's helping us understand that we have this high priest, this king, Jesus, who is not different and distant, but who is entirely like and empathetic. That he has walked the path that we walk on our behalf, but that he's done so differently from us in that he did so perfectly. And so what we can faithfully deduce from this, especially as we talk about the kingdom of God being established by obedience, we can know that Jesus knows, that Jesus knows intimately, fully, what it costs to be obedient to the will of the Father. He knows that. He experienced that, right? This is what it means when it tells us that he learned obedience, right? Not because he was disobedient formerly, but he just learned what it costs, what it takes to be obedient. And so although Jesus was fully God, he was also fully human, and he experienced this for what reason? Verse 9 says this, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, as a standalone verse, that's pretty scary, right? Like if we read nothing else in the Bible and we just read verse 9, that's pretty scary. Right? It says that eternal salvation belongs to who? All who obey Him. Now, I don't know about you, but my life is not nearly as much marked with obedience to Jesus as it is obedience to my own selfish desires. If I'm just being honest. Yet when we read this, in the light of these first verses and the testimony of the rest of the Bible, which is that Jesus was obedient for us when we couldn't be. And when we come to understand what is meant by the phrase in 2 Corinthians that tells us that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness or the obedience of God, then then Christ's empathetic obedience on our behalf to God comes alive for us. And here's what that ultimately should do, I think, as we talk about the kingdom of God being established by obedience. One, we can really and firstly say that the kingdom of God is first established by the obedience of Jesus, right? Like that he came and he told us that the kingdom of God is at hand to repent and believe in the gospel. And we've talked clearly about how this gospel is what ultimately allows us entrance into the kingdom, right? And that that, that that entrance is secured for us because Jesus walked in obedience to God where we didn't, right? We've, we've, we've talked about that. But I think what this also can do for us is help us to understand that, that we no longer have to be afraid of that word for us. Right? Like even, even just... Even just throwing that word out there, in, in really in any circle of people, but particularly among young people, that word obedience causes us to cringe a little bit. Things start to get tense. Muscles get weird, right? 
I don't, I don't like that. I don't, wa- I don't want to be accountable to anyone or anything. I am my own person. I do what I like. I have free, like, the, right? And yet I think, or I would hope, that as we look at not only <laughs> Jesus in verses 5 and 6 having no reason to need to be obedient, and yet coming and doing so anyway in his humanity, that when we get our, our one verse of exhortation to obey and follow Jesus, that that, 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 that should sort of change our, our view of that word itself. Because now, right, we can understand that we can, we can legitimately fight, like strive to obey Jesus, and yet understand that there is grace to fail because we already possess perfect obedience. Like that your record is Jesus' record. Your, Jesus, your record is already Jesus' record, and yet, and yet the call to obey Him shouldn't be taken lightly. Right? And so there's this, there's this weird like, kind of paradox. There's this weird balance where, where um, we're tempted in one way or the other to put more weight on one side. And yet the the truth of the matter is that there is great and glorious freedom in both of those things being true. It being true that God has for all time secured for you an obedience that you couldn't, that you couldn't accomplish. That, that as First Peter would tell us, that that obedience is an inheritance for you that is unperishing, that is undefiled, and that is kept safely in heaven waiting for you. That that's done. That, it's, that, that Jesus did not lie when on the cross He said it is finished. And that now, because of that, there's a great freedom to follow Jesus as closely as we can, knowing that when we fall, it's okay. That neither of those are, are, are mutually exclusive truths. That it is not, that it is not like... Okay, grace and immorality, or morality and no grace. But that those two things ultimately go together as we follow Jesus, that He does transform us. That we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That, that let's just put it very simply. Often we call Christians followers of Jesus. And if Jesus was obedient to God, then it would logically follow that his followers would also be obedient to God. In fact, James goes so far as to say that disobedient Christian is an oxymoron. That faith is not accompanied that faith that is not accompanied by obedience is dead. So the kingdom of God is, is first established by Jesus' life of obedience. And it continues to be established in the obedient lives of his people, right? That in the words of Jesus himself, he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus did this first. He did this best. He did this completely. But it behooves us as his followers to follow him in it. Now, let's... Let's reconcile that, right, with the fact that I said earlier that we are wired for disobedience, right? 
Like one, we don't even like the word. And then two, if you ask any parent in the room, we are wired for disobedience. I look forward to finding that out for myself. And yet, much like the parent, God asks us to obey, not simply for obedience's sake, but for our benefit, for our protection, for our flourishing, right? Like, like if when you were five, you got to do everything that you ever wanted to do and there was never like anyone saying, hey, you should probably not do that, you would be dead already. It's, it's true, right? Like when your parents are like, don't play in the street. That's a good thing to obey. Like your life continued because of that in a, in a better space, right? Or, or don't touch the stove, it's hot, right? A lot of us disobeyed that one, at least I did, right? And we, like we learned we learned what it, what it looked like in that moment to like, okay, we can have it our way and this is what happens or we can just do what, do what mom and dad say and not touch the stove. Right? You got like that mitten cast for like a week. All that God asks for us to run from in obedience to him has a perfect and better alternative. In fact, as Peter would say, he says that our former ways were futile but that now we've been given fruitful lives, right? That in obedience to Jesus, we actually experience fruit. That life is no longer the toy which we formerly experienced, but that now it is fruitful, infutile, it's productive in the sense that we begin to understand that underneath the gracious reign and rule of our King Jesus, and through his priestly action on our behalf, that we can now experience the peace and the justice and the mercy that characterizes inhabitants in his kingdom. Here's the thing. If obedience to Jesus uh, sounds, sounds something like maybe we wouldn't want, then heaven will be really, really uncomfortable for us. In that... One of the reasons that heaven sounds like such a great place, like right, whether, whether you're a believer in the room this morning or not a believer, the idea of a place where there is no suffering, where there is no pain, where there are no tears, where there's no sorrow, where there's no injustice, right, where there's nothing but peace, like, okay, like I think everyone in the, the room can kind of agree that, that that's a good thing. You may disagree on how we get to that place and who does that for us, but we can agree that that's a good place, right? Well, the, the, the chief contention of the Bible is that the reason that heaven is that way and the reason that those characteristics are said of heaven is because in heaven is where people obey Jesus fully and experience that perfection. In fact, that is the end towards which you are saved if you read Romans chapter 8, right? That, that chapter in the Bible that we're all so scared of. It says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified, right? We like the justified. And then those whom he justified, he glorified. He makes them perfect in the same way that he was made perfect through his obedience. So here's my hope. This, 
is that Sojourn ultimately would be a place where not only this week, but really every week, every day, we would endeavor to simply take the next step of obedience to Jesus, full of assurance that he already loves us and is incapable of loving us any more or any less because of the work he's already done. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool that the the Lord would say, hey, these are the things that you need to do, but you know what? I'm not going to love you any more or any less regardless of what happens because the work that Jesus did on your behalf is already finished. And to you, it's a gift of my grace. Isn't that cool that you get to operate in a space where your failure does not dictate whether you are successful or not? Isn't it great to live into that knowing that you can strive for something and fail gloriously in the gospel and still rely on the fact that Jesus loves you? This should change the way we we think about obedience. Obedience isn't a chore, brothers and sisters. It's It's a moment to step further into that glorious kingdom of God where perfect obedience to Jesus leads to the society that ultimately we all want, which is filled and characterized with peace and the absence of sorrow and death and sin and pain. And brothers and sisters, the, the, the church, right, the, this kingdom of God, this people who belong to one another is the place in which that should be experienced more fully. And when we walk in obedience to Jesus, that's what happens. And so um, I don't know what, what that step is for you, but I would encourage you, man, whatever it is, to, to, to get into community and to walk, walk it out together. And that's, that's ultimately why, why Sojourn exists. It's to see those who don't know Jesus become obedient to Jesus in, in calling him Savior, right? And then from that point after, it's that next step. Man, for you, it, it, might, it, it might be that, just saying, man, I just, need to, like, I just need to submit myself to Jesus first. Some of you, it might be like, hey, I, like, I've done that. The, the very next and clearest step of obedience would be baptism, which we get to celebrate today, right? Pretty timely. I didn't plan that, by the way. All right, for some of you, it might be you need to be obedient in the way you spend your money. You might be, need to be obedient in the way you act in your, in your sex life. You may need to be obedient in any number of other things. For some of you, right, it may be just simply obedient enough to say, I'm going to jump into a church and call it home because the Bible tells me that I've been adopted into a family, not into an institution. I'm not just a card-carrying member, but that I'm actually part of this bloodline. So whatever that step is of obedience to you, like, let's do that. Let's do that in full confidence that Jesus is both our king and our high priest, that he's accomplished obedience for us, and that now we get to obey with great freedom and with great joy, knowing that the ends for which all is heading is a place where we are perfectly obedient and where the experience of that perfect obedience is the truest and most great experience of existence that we could ever imagine. Let's pray.